This pandemic has been interesting for me, you know, being in the spotlight a little bit, uh, being an influencer, if you will, posting on social media has been interesting. You know, vaccines to me were never controversial. Um, and if I wanted to go into something controversial, I would have been a porn star. Today, I'm delighted to sit down with accomplished pediatrician and Houston, Texas native, Alex Yudovich. With an expertise in preventative medicine, Alex has a passion for teaching health literacy and dispelling medical myths. Join us on today's episode as we chat about everything from Alex meeting his wife at LA Children's Hospital to discussing the complexities of ADHD and the overprescription of antibiotics, how Alex defines success, and his top tips to managing self-doubt. We also dive into his unexpected Mexican heritage and hear about his unbelievable family lineage, which entails narrowly escaping Nazi-occupied France. Alex Yudovich, thanks so much for coming down to Hennessy Studios, man. I appreciate it. It's a pleasure. And now you didn't just like drive around the corner to be here. You actually traveled to come here, huh? I flew in from Houston, Texas, Houston. Uh, where I was born and raised. And uh, But it's good to be back in L.A. because I actually did live here for four years. Tell me a little bit about that. So what brought you out to L.A. for four years? When, around what time did you come out here? I moved out here in 2010 okay. uh, to do my pediatrics residency at Children's Hospital Los Angeles. Huh. So as I said, born, raised, educated in Texas, went to medical school uh, at the University of Texas Medical Branch. And then wanted to get out of Houston because uh, my father's a pediatrician and trained uh, at Baylor College of Medicine at Texas Children's. So um, I looked at New York, L.A. Luckily, I ended up here in L.A. because uh, I had a great time, met my wife. Hmm. Uh, now I'm back in Houston. So you met your wife here. I did. I did. We actually were set up on a blind date in the place where we met. It was on a bench at Children's Hospital Los Angeles because she was a volunteer there. Uh, so we met um, and the day before our first date. But we met at Children's Hospital Los Angeles. So a very special city, a very special hospital for me. So doing the math, um, 13 years? How long have you been married? Well, we didn't get married till 2013. But, okay. uh, but we met on January 3rd, 2011. So technically started dating in 2011, married okay. in 2013. And, and now we've been married uh, eight years. Eight years. Yeah. So you waited a little bit. Yeah. My story is a little different. I met my wife and uh, got married a month and a half later, but yeah. <laughs> just, you know, just because. When I, you know, you know. You do, right? I guess you do. So um, when you're looking to do, because I, obviously I, I didn't go to medical school, right? You know, I wasn't smart like that in, in, in high school, right? I was a kid selling you like lollipops and stuff in school, <laughs> right? That wasn't really in my cards, right? But it sounded like, like you said, your dad was a pediatrician, right? Mm -hmm. So did you know at an early age, like I'm talking like grade school, middle school, was that kind of what you thought you were going to do? I think so. I mean, it, it, a lot of people were always like, oh, you'll be a doctor like your dad, right? And I was like, yeah, sure. Why not? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but the pressure never came from my dad. The, never, the pressure really didn't come from him. But you know, in the end, it's a great field. You get to work with kids. Um, you get yeah. to sort of guide parents through some hardships. Sure. And um, and gu guide them through some things where, you know, a lot of parents lose objectivity with their kids. And you realize that. I, I realize that now as a father, mm -hmm. you kind of lose objectivity. It's And so a lot of subjectivity and you need someone to talk you off a ledge a lot of times. And that's, that's our job a lot of the times, you know, yeah. to just bring back uh, kids parents away from worries. I got it. Yep. Where'd you go to undergrad? 
I went to the University University of Texas at Austin. Okay. Horns. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> the Longhorn, mm-hmm. where uh, I was also part of a group that got to take care of the live steer, uh, the Silver Spurs. Okay. So I helped take care of Bevo, huh. which was a really cool experience. Yeah. Know, being 20 years old and hanging out with a steer on the weekend. <laughs> So after that, I graduated and then went off to, and I'm making this very quick, right? Sure. It wasn't a quick process to go through undergrad, right? But so then you went to med school. Where'd you go med school? Med school. So immediately after Austin graduated, went to the University of Texas Medical Branch, which is the original uh, medical school in Texas. It's in Galveston okay. of all places. And interestingly enough, I was there during Hurricane Ike, which displaced us. And so I got to do a lot of medical school kind of all over the state, mm-hmm. um, in Houston and Austin, uh, and, and and in Galveston. So it was very, very fun. And did med school come natural to you or did you have to work really hard? Um, the, the interesting thing about me, you said, you know, you weren't that smart. Yeah. But really, I always found someone smarter than me uh-huh. and just sort of became friends with them and sort yeah. of said, hey, what, what are you studying, you know? Uh-huh. And so in med school, I found a guy. I was like, hey, are you doing all the uh, optional reading? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, okay, well, I guess I will too. Huh. So, you know, just... Um, trying to keep up with others who I believe and perceive as smarter than me. Sure. So that's kind of always been what I, what I did. That's what I do now. Right. <laughs> yeah. They say you are right. The five people that you hang out with most. Right. And so if you're hanging out with those five people in college, right, you're probably destined for success, I guess. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm, I'm proud to say a lot of my, most of my friends from college and, and even high school and even childhood, like they found success, which is great. And, you know, while I went, for the, the career path of medicine, you know, whether you're an entrepreneur like yourself, mm-hmm. you know, success can be defined and redefined. And I think it's really 1, important to redefine it as you, as you go along. I'm redefining my success now, right? You know, um, I've always mo- money motivated, right? Mm-hmm. So I, for a long time, I wanted to make a living and I wanted to make a good living. You know, now I'm trying to make a difference, right? You mm-hmm. know, so you start to, and as you start to make more of a difference, you know, money has nothing to do with success, right? Yeah. As you're kind of impacting people's lives. You kind of learn that as you go along. You do. For me, I mean, part of going into medicine, honestly, was was kind of like money anxious. Mm-hmm. And I always wondered what, you know, what, the, you know, being unemployed or between jobs, that was always something that was scary to me. I sure. guess maybe because my dad always had the same job and had a job that was pandemic proof, I guess, if you will, or national emergency proof. Yeah. Uh, you always need a pediatrician. So when it came down to it, I think that was also one of the, reasons I went for it. Just, you know, steady. Um, now it turns out the pandemic it was a little interesting oh, sure. being a doctor during the pandemic, but, um, but it's, it's been a great field and I'm, I'm grateful for my education and grateful for, for everything that I went through. Now here's a, a question. So were you at like, cause when you're in med school, you're still young, right? You don't have life all figured out. Right? You don't, you definitely don't. And, and honestly, at that time, you know, when you're 22 to 26, as I was going straight from college and so many people, you, there's so many friends who are in finance or whatever it mm-hmm. is, making money, taking trips, you know, and you're kind of like, I'm kind of studying uh, for the next month. You're, what are you doing? Oh, you're going where? Oh, that's fun. But the good news is everyone gets it in time. And now I'm, you know, doing those things now. It's yeah. just a little bit delayed. <clears throat> but there are certainly times, especially when you're doing poorly, if you did, you know, badly on a test and you're wondering, oh my gosh, am I cut out for this? And there's a lot of self-doubt, but, and that's what I tell a lot of young people who are wanting to go to medical school. Like yeah. while you're in it, you're going to say, why am I doing this yeah. a few times? Especially as your friends start getting paychecks, success, trips, marriage, whatever it is. Um, and you might not be doing that, but we all know now in our wisdom that everyone is running their own race and yeah. you got to just, you know, find your path, 
continue it if you think it's right for you and stick with it through hardships. Well, that was, that's where I was going with that is like, you know, you've committed, right? You've committed to this career. That's not, you just don't call audibles, right? After you've got this debt, right? From med school, it's like, you are committed, right? And so, you know, that could be kind of scary for, you know, a young, like adolescence that still their brain isn't fully developed yet, right? Because you're not developed until you're like 26. Mm -hmm. Did any of your friends from med school not pursue it after they graduated? Did any of them say, hey, you know what? This is not for me. I really want to be an entrepreneur or I really want to do something different. You know, you, you meet a handful. I think it's happening more and more where people will finish med school and then realize, you know, just with that education, there's a lot you can do in Got consulting it. or helping out a large corporation with just a very specific niche. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of opportunities for those who don't want to practice medicine. Mm -hmm. For me, it was like, I, I made it all the way through. Now it's time to do a residency. It's time to practice and, yeah. and you know, finally get to do my real adult job at, you know, I'm coming out at age 29, huh. you know, finally getting my first real job at yeah. a residency at, at 29. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. wow. Right. Yeah. And and that's just me who had three years of residency and then one year as chief resident at, at Children's Hospital. But some residents have, you know, five, six years plus a fellowship, you know, yeah. another three years. So there's some people who don't start their job till their mid thirties or well, adult job, if you will, until their mid thirties. So it's an interesting career path. But once you're there and you have all this expertise, you have all this knowledge, it's really helpful. And especially Again, going back, everything for me goes back to the pandemic because it's all I've done for two years. Uh -huh. Just being able to help, you know, interpret data or again, again, guide parents or guide families. Got it. With good information. So now while you're in med school, do you have to choose like, I want to be a dermatologist. I want to be a pediatrician. I want to be a brain surgeon, right? Like how do you, how do you start to like, like pick the career path that you'd like to go down? Well, certainly for me, pediatrics was always sort of like, hey, that could do that. Mm -hmm. But it, there is a, a thought process you have to go through. And for me, it was, do I want to be a surgeon or a doctor? And after a few days on the surgery rotation, I realized I'm going to be a medical doctor. I'll do more prescribing than cutting. Okay. And then the question was adults or kids. And I thought I wanted to be an ophthalmologist. And I spent a couple of months doing ophthalmology and realized Oh, I don't need a stethoscope for this. That's odd. I, I've always been told you need a stethoscope. But this is in residency, not no, med this school. is in medical school. Oh, so this yeah. is in med school. Okay. And so then when the decision came, do I take care of adults or take care of kids? The decision for me came down to feet and poop mm -hmm. uh, in that children and babies, really much cuter feet and, and way more tolerable poop. So, <laughs> so that's how I came to be a pediatrician. Got it. So now what that's. I always wondered that, right? I always wondered that, like, you know, like. What? Yeah, it's a process. So the, uh -huh. the beauty of medical school is in third, really in third year, you do a few rotations of everything. So mm -hmm. when you graduate, even though I'm a pediatrician, I spent two months on a surger, surgical floor. Yeah. Um, we do a couple months of emergency room medicine. We see intensive care units. We see psychiatry units, you know, so we, we learn a little bit of everything and we see a lot and learn a lot about pathologies of adults, of children. Yeah. Of, of humans. I see. And so when you go to do your residency, how many years do you have to do that? Uh, at least three. Three years. Yeah. And you chose UCLA? No. So Children's Hospital Los Angeles is oh, actually, Children's Hospital. It's actually associated with USC. Okay. Um, and it's in uh, Los Feliz. Got it. Yeah. And so while you're there, like that's really more like on the job training. Is that what that is? Yes. It okay. Is. That's a perfect Perfect description. Yeah. It's, it's learning as you go. Shadowing learning. other doctors. Well, and... no, it's really taking responsibility. So you have a, you are the in charge doctor. You have a supervising 
physician, but you are a resident physician. The term resident physician came from literally the doctors used to live at the hospital hmm. since they were there so often. Okay. There's rules and regulations now where people don't live at the hospital anymore. Um, but that is why you were called the resident physician. Got it. As you were doing your residency there, you thought, okay, great. I'm probably not going to stay in LA. I'm going to move back home to be closer to my family, pick my dad's brain when I need to pick his brain a little bit. Is that the yeah, decision that you're decision. making? Because your wife was here too. Correct. Or your girlfriend yeah. at the time, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so that was the, the tough question at the end. Do we stay in LA or do we go home? Now, yeah. I told my then girlfriend on our second date, just so you know, I plan on moving back to Houston. And where <laughs> was I'm, she from? She's from Los Angeles. So she is from out here. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And it turns out in the last, uh, you know, eight eight years that we've been living in Houston, so many people have moved from California to Texas. So we, oh, were, yeah. we were kind of the pioneers on that maybe. <laughs> uh, but no, the decision was always to go work with my dad. And that was the plan to, to you know, work in the family clinic that he started huh. uh, close to 50 years ago. Well, he joined, but then it became his, solely his, almost mm -hmm. 50 years ago. Yeah. So it's been fun over the last eight years getting to work with him. Well, it's not too many people have a mentor like that, right? Definitely. I I feel blessed that when I did go into my residency, I had already learned so much by just sort of watching my dad shadowing with him and, you know, uh, in college summers, med school summers, and finally in med school, I got credit for it. Uh -huh. uh, but uh, so I definitely was able to focus on a lot of the esoterics of pediatrics because I already knew the basics yeah. <laughs> uh, just by learning and watching my dad. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like as you're reading stuff in textbooks, right? A lot of stuff like, like for example, like in high school, right? I read about the Panama Canal, right? Well, a month ago I, w I went to Panama, right? And it's a whole different experience when you go and you experience the culture and the food and you actually see the Panama Canal and you get on a boat and you drive through the Panama Canal. Like, you know what I mean? Like whole different experience. And so my point here is that as you're reading this stuff in textbooks, like a lot of this stuff is coming naturally because you can see your dad visually doing what is told in the textbook, right? Definitely. So you had that advantage, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I when I take when I took tests in med school, that was the first time I was ever good, mm -hmm. by the way, at testing. I was terrible before med school. Maybe it's because I finally was learning the things I wanted to. But I always think of when I when I would read a question, I would think of the movie Slumdog Millionaire. Oh yeah. You know, that in Slumdog Millionaire, he gets presented with a question. Um, and then he would go back to his life and how he learned that question, sure. how he learned the answer to that question. And for yeah. me, I would read a question on, on a paper and say, I know that B is the answer because when this patient came in and did this and, you know, I have a, a memory like that. We're very visual and, uh, yeah. and I sort of learn by experience. Got it. And, and mm -hmm. so, yeah, I was again, blessed to have had that opportunity to just watch, watch my dad do his thing. Interesting. So, uh, so there's that old, um, uh, I guess, saying or thought process where, you know, when you're in the hospital or you go to the doctor, right? And um, in walks that young doctor, <laughs> right? <laughs> Who's got jet black hair or jet, you know what I mean? Doesn't look like he has all the wisdom, right? Of the senior, more wise doctor, right? So is that, did you get a sense of that? Like when you just finally broke into this where people like, Who's this new kid, right? Yeah, even, they even in residency and, and just out of residency, it was a lot of, you're, you're a doctor? Uh -huh. Yes, this is what a doctor can look like. We, <laughs> we can be young and we can know a lot. Uh, we don't have that much experience, but we do know what we're doing. Mm -hmm. Got it. So what's something unexpected that you learned in med school that wasn't necessarily medicine related? Oof. 
Because like, for example, like most doctors and most lawyers, right? They're not the best business people. But what's, is there something that maybe come to mind that, uh, that you might've learned in med school that wasn't necessarily medicine related? Um, well, I think one of the most interesting things I learned in med school, the curriculum kind of changed a few years before I got to med school. Okay. And they, they implemented something called problem-based learning and where we would learn cases, mm-hmm. whether they were, you know, I remember the first one was breast cancer. And the okay. second one was Crohn's disease and, and learning from doctors in small groups and, and sort of learning the, the practice of medicine and not just so much the, the, what it says in the books, but how to, how to talk to people, how to be empathic, mm-hmm. how to ask the question, do you have hope? And just instilling s- things like that in people because without hope, it's difficult to, to see a positive future. And in, Interesting. In, in medicine, that makes a lot of sense with things that cancer, chronic diseases, you know, you always want people to have hope. Yeah. Whether it's faith, you know, in, in God and a higher being and spirituality, just having hope. And so I remember that was one of the first lessons I learned in med school thinking, wow, this has nothing to do with sort of science, um, you know, per se, but it has a lot to do with, you know, the humanism in medicine. Mm. So teaching you the soft skills of how to communicate and have more sympathy and empathy. Yes. Interesting. Yeah. That's probably like 60% of the battle, right? You know, like how you communicate things to family members and manage the expectations of their loved ones. Absolutely. Yeah. So now uh, you work a lot. You're a pediatrician. Okay. How many children do you think you have uh, seen in your career. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm definitely in the thousands. For in the sure. thousands. Yeah. Right. So I've been a pediatrician now for 10 full years. I can huh. say, you know, I graduated, um, well, it, 10 years, let's just 10 say. years. Yeah. Okay. Which, which, you know, doesn't sound like too much compared to my dad of, you know, 50 years and other doctors, uh, with more gray hair than I, but, uh, but 10 years is, uh, it's a long time. a long time. It is a long time. It's funny because like, as a kid, I grew up on Long Island in New York and, um, most everybody in my little town went to Dr. Serrano. Dr. Serrano was, you know, an older doctor. You know, maybe when I was going to him, he might have been about 15 years from retiring. He's now since retired. Um, but his son was the new kid on the block, wow. and the son would come and see him, and that was doc- also Dr. Serrano, right? And there was, um, you know, it, this was like a little house. Like you went to like this, it felt, it was a house really, but they converted it into an office building, right? And he was like a staple. He's been there forever, right? People still go to Dr. Serrano if you look in Lindenhurst, New York. And I remember going there, right? And there's always the same thing. All right, great. Take your shirt off, like heart rate, you know, tonsils, check. You know, back then there was no COVID, right? It was just, <laughs> we had colds and stuff. We'd go. And the cure for everything was this pink bubble gum medicine that I would get. <laughs> that was the cure, right? Like every time I would go to the doctor, like I would actually look forward to it because I knew that I was going to leave there with this pink, do you know what I'm talking about? It's amoxicillin. Yes. It's, people still call it the pink medicine, the, you know, the bubble gum medicine. Yeah. So that's, that's like, that was the cure for everything. And then if you didn't go to Dr. Rubitussin was the cure, right? <laughs> you know, at least when I was growing up. So that's still a thing. Huh? Well, we're trying to prescribe that pink medicine a little less nowadays. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the the new guidelines, for example, for ear infections is really try to avoid antibiotics unless, okay. unless it's severe and there's a lot of symptoms. Yeah. Uh, so antibiotic stewardship is something that's really been practiced and really needs to be 
um, really needs to be followed because one day that pink medicine may not work. Sure. Yeah. If you if you're familiar with War of the Worlds, um, the is one of my favorite references. And of course, I have to tell people, no, not the book, the Tom Cruise movie, because <laughs> <laughs> otherwise they don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but but eventually the bacteria win. You know that these aliens come through and nothing can be they can't penetrate through their for, uh, through their force fields. But what yeah. does? eventually penetrated with these bacteria. Interesting. And, and so one day when our antibiotics don't work, it's those bacteria that were here before us that may win the battle when it's all said and done. Yeah, because now, nowadays, like if I go to the doctor, right, they want to avoid at all costs giving you antibiotics, yeah. right? And so what's the reason for that? You well, know? just that. I mean, most of the things nowadays, well, viruses is way more common. Okay. You know, when your throat hurts and there's, you know, there's it's red back there, yeah. it's way more likely to be a virus than, okay. than a bacteria. And so it's actually... It's a tough conversation sometimes because parents are like, wait, you're not going to prescribe my child antibiotics for the throat infection you told me you have? And I yeah. said, well, again, it's a viral throat infection. I say, again, we didn't never said it, but yeah. maybe this is a viral throat infection. We did a strep test and it's not strep throat. And, mm-hmm. and you know, it might hurt for a couple of days, but it should go away on its own. Um, and of course, if it doesn't, please come back and we can retest. We can see what other things it is. But the amount of viruses that cause throat, a throat infection or pharyngitis, you know, probably six plus that we can think of. I can tell you off the top of my head. Yeah. And strep is just one thing. Sure. So way more likely if your throat hurts. Now, this doesn't mean that if your throat hurts, please don't, you don't have to go see a doctor because it's a virus. Please don't yeah. take this as medical advice. Uh-huh. I've been told I always have to say that. You have to do, yeah. 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 Um, uh-huh. But, you know, it's just what we know now is different than what we thought back then. Back then it was probably, hey, your throat looks red here. Take the bubblegum medicine. Sure. Now it's, let's do this, this quick strep test. And if it's not strep, we feel pretty good that it's not strep. And of course, if the doctor still thinks it's strep, there's a secondary test, a confirmatory test that can always be sent to the laboratory. Interesting. So, uh, so many years later, like when I had kids, you know, my, uh, my one son started to get seizures. Oh, right. That's scary. Uh, very scary because it was our first child, right? And so you turn blue and we're like, oh my God, the ambulance comes to the house. Um, and we thought it was a febrile seizure, sure. right? That's kind of would be like the most common thing. Um, and at that time, you really don't know, right? And as a parent, you're scared, right? And so like you said, the sympathy and empathy of a doctor telling us, okay, what's going to happen? What do we do? Um, and so uh, it turns out we went to a... One doctor, they're like, I don't know, we need to do blood work, right? And then we, next thing you know, they they started sending us to um, uh, cancer doctors, Oh, right? And then like at that point, you really start to think about your life, right? It is like everything just kind of stops in a moment, right? And so here we are at a, at a doctor, we're living in Las Vegas, and so we're going to see cancer doctors. Um, and so... They diagnosed him as having von Willebrand's disease. I'm oh, not sure if you're familiar with that. Sure. Is. Okay. Yeah. Um, that was part of it. Um, but then he also was uh, diagnosed as epilepsy too, okay. right? And so as he as they diagnosed him with the epilepsy and the von Willebrand's, now the practice began with the medicine, right? And so I remember putting him on uh, Keppra. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's probably like four other medicines and, and we couldn't break it wow. right um and so then they're like okay we need to do something a little bit more and so then they use steroids to try to break the pattern and then my son gained a lot of weight at the time sure um and so uh we're like screw this um you know we want to go see doctors out in LA just to get a second opinion on this we were kind of going from one doctor to the next and so eventually he kind of uh what what I'm told is he outgrew it and he doesn't have epilepsy anymore, right? Okay. But it was 
was, you know, from the time he was like three years old to the time he was probably like 12, like we dealt with that. Wow. Yeah. You know, it's interesting when it comes to febrile seizures, you know, mm-hmm. the most common is something called simple febrile seizures. And, and really that's what a lot of people fear with fever is, mm-hmm. is seizure. Yeah. Uh, it's very few people. I mean, this is maybe sounds maybe different than what your son went through. Sure. But when it comes to simple febrile seizures, which is the most common thing, as you said, um, it's, it's scary to see a child seize. Sure. Um, but if it's always with a fever and it meets certain criteria, then we know that kid is more than likely going to grow out of it. Mm-hmm. And when I say more than likely, it's like That's 99% we yeah. will grow out of uh-huh. it. And, and of course, it's scary because you can never predict. And, you know, you can tell parents, oh, take ibuprofen, take Tylenol. But really, you can have a regular, you can have a normal temperature of 97. Yeah. And it goes up to 99, which isn't technically a fever. But if it goes quickly enough and the child has the gene for this, they will have a seizure. So sure. really, safety, precautions, and education is really so important. Especially because, yeah, you start thinking about seizures and lifelong problems. And, you know, can, I want my child to scuba dive. He can't scuba dive. You know, yeah. scary thoughts like that. But you just stay present. And and always keep keep your child objectively. How does he look when he's sick? What you know? It's just, it, again, it's hard, but you got to keep that objectivity sometimes. Oh yeah, and so like we would do like um, we'd go and they'd do these EKGs, right? The EEGs. EEG. Yes. I'm sorry about the EEG. And so he'd have to like wear like like I don't know like Electrics. forty yeah. like things coming off of his head, right? And then we'd have to like take him home like that, and he'd have to sleep overnight, right? The first time that we seen him seize, like it wasn't like convulsing or anything like that. He was, um, he just turned blue and he couldn't talk and he would just freeze, right? It was really weird, right? And that was like real scary. But then like later on, you know, what we learned after all these different tests was that he, he had something called epileptic sleep something. I can't remember. It's like ES is an acronym for it. But it turns out that he was having seizure activity while he would sleep. Right. And so he wouldn't get that deep sleep, the deep sleep. Right. And so he had a lot hard time in school as a result of that his whole life. There's yeah. a lot of a lot a great field that's growing of sleep medicine, mm-hmm. uh, both for adults and for children. Yeah. Without a good night's sleep, kids really they can struggle in school. They can struggle with behavior. They can struggle with memory. Yeah. And so it's always important to rule out medical conditions like that. So sure. it's great. That's why EEGs are done awake and asleep. Mm-hmm. It's very important. Yeah, my wife will kill me if she's like, I can't believe you didn't remember what it was. You know, she, <laughs> I just don't, I don't remember. Um, <laughs> so whatever, it wait, it's gone now, it's right? It's gone now. So. Yes, it's gone now. So what are, what are some other things like, you know, like sugar, right? Let's talk about sugar for a second. Like, because okay. that's a thing that a lot of kids take. And I would imagine that is a drug, right? Isn't it? I I believe sugar is a drug. It certainly causes the same effect in the brain of a dopamine release. It does. It's the same thing as drugs. And certainly kids are addicted to sugar. Hmm. I often tell patients, if you cut out sugary drinks for three months, which sounds like an eternity for a child and for an adult too, three months of your life. And three months later, you taste that sugary drink again, you're not going to like it. First of all, the taste is going to be like, whoa, because it's not the taste that you like. It's the what you get in your brain that you like. It's that reward. Interesting. And so, um, yes, sugar, in my opinion, especially in, in the in a drink form, I'm looking at your drink. I hope there's no sugar in there. There's Jason. no sugar in oh, this. Thank goodness. Yes, unsweetened black tea. Yes. <laughs> Super important. Because this, if it had raspberry flavor or something, it's a lot of sugar. Yeah, yeah uh-huh. for sure. And you yeah. look at, 
I again, often tell patients, if you're going to have a snack, you should really limit it to 200 calories. Mm -hmm. And if you look on a 20 ounce can of Coke, for example, 20 ounce can of Coke has two, over 200 calories. Sure. So what are you supposed to eat? Because your snack is supposed to be 200 calories. Yeah. So it's, it, it sneaks up on you. It causes a lot of insulin release, causes a lot of, you know, uh, obesity related issues, but yeah. really it is essentially a drug. And cancer too, right? You know, yeah. Sugar, um, right? Well, certainly diabetes and uh, heart disease and things I like see, that. I'm not yeah. sure. I'm personally not sure of any links to cancer. Okay, then maybe if, I'm if they have speaking, been, If there yeah. are, I, I certainly, okay. I've been so busy with the pandemic that I, I don't know about interesting. cancer. But interesting. Perhaps. So um, now it's, it's easy, right? So the doctor comes in and says, hey, you know, stop taking sugar, right? But it's really hard to hold people accountable. Like, 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 cause parents, it's like, you go to a birthday party, everybody's eating cake, right? Oh, a lollipop comes in the gift bag that you take home. It's like, like society is setting us up to fail. Agreed. Right. Um, yeah. You know, you know, there's so much marketing out there, you know, med med marketing versus medical advice. Sure. And, you know, milk does a body good. Got milk. But we really need milk. <laughs> no, there's a lot know. of I mean, sugar in milk, right? But that was the thing when we were kids. Like drink milk. They, yeah. they give it in schools, right? You I know, mean, milk has, I'd rather a kid drink yogurt drinks. Yeah. Than drink milk or eat yogurt. Yeah. Cheese. Um, but, but when it comes to, to that, you know, it, it's the same thing as screen time. It's the same mm -hmm. thing as anything. It's, yeah. You got to have limits. Sure. And so, yeah, I want, my kids eat sugar. We have donuts every once in a while for breakfast, but yeah. we certainly don't do it every day. Every day. And we certainly don't do it once a week, but yeah. every couple of weeks, if they haven't had donuts and the kids are like, can I have donuts? Yeah, why not? Yeah, you can't deprive them yeah. of like but, living. And also, right? look, we had donuts this morning. We're going to a birthday party. Let's let's have one piece of cake. Let's, yeah. let's avoid the lollipop now. Let's maybe have it tomorrow. You know, that's just right. With time. Yeah. Now, Halloween candy, that's a different story. I don't know how to set limits <laughs> on that. You just make exceptions during <laughs> that one week, right? Yeah. Here's another uh, interesting thing, right? You know, you, you got a kid, goes to school. Um, he's got ADHD. All right. You kind of know where I'm going with this question, right? Um, you know, and, and, and he's not really configured to do well in school because his mind is racing and he's thinking about other things and who eventually might be able to kind of like innovate something in the world that the whole world needs because of his creativity and the way he's wired right like that right you know so now the schools instantly are like hey we need to do something about this kid because he's distracting class right and so what do they go towards right medicine, medicine. right and then it takes that kid from being who he is, their true identity of that person, to being somebody that kind of is fits in the box of a kid that should be sitting well in school. Like, I'm just curious about your thoughts on that. Well, <clears throat> I, I will tell you the way you just framed it is something that a lot of parents say. Uh -huh. You know, I don't want to make my kid a zombie or whatever it is. I want him to be who he is. Yeah. Um, you know, and the truth is a lot of schools will bring up the diagnosis of ADHD at age four, which it's a little early to say that. Mm -hmm. but. As kids get to first grade, especially kindergarten, first grade, you know, you start to realize that those kids, it, it's not that who they are is the problem, but the way their brain is wired certainly isn't allowing them to focus. Sure. So what I'll say is studies after studies have shown, especially for kids six and up, medication is really the gold standard. And now one out of three kids will need medication going mm -hmm. into adulthood. Um but we all know those people with ADHD in adulthood, and they're pretty successful most of the time. Some, yeah, right? right? And even if they're on medicines, they're successful. And if they come off of medications, they can be successful. For me, I remember learning how to learn in, in middle school. Like, that's mm -hmm. when I learned 
how to learn. And that's what, what I tell all my patients. Middle school, really just practice learning. And if your kid can figure out how they learn in middle school and come, and they can come off medication, great. Yeah. But there's really, there's side effects to the medications, but they're really well tolerated. It's a medication you can not give on the weekends, for example. Again, talk to your doctor, yeah. about your individual uh, <laughs> cases. But uh, there's a lot of hesitation to put kids on medicines from parents. But then immediately after they go on the medication, the benefits are immediate for those children mm-hmm. and they can focus more sure. and they can learn more. And, and while yes, the one size fits all approach to school clearly is not the best. That's right. Uh, the medications can certainly, again, not make them fit in the box, uh-huh. but do better for yeah. themselves. And it's one of those things. It's like, you're damned if you do damned if you don't, there's no right or wrong answer here. Right. And that's the beauty of parenting. There's yeah. very few wrong things. We know what is wrong? Like, please don't hit your children. Sure. Please don't put them in imminent danger. But the good news is when it comes to medicine like that, you can you can start, you can change, you can stop, or you can watch and wait. And eventually, with most parents, with the watch and wait approach, like, okay, you're six, and we diagnose you with ADHD, they're not ready to start medicine. Eventually, it sort of becomes like, okay, maybe we should start it. Sure. Um, and then when they start it, it, it generally goes well. Sure. Yeah. Like yeah. my, um, my sister-in-law was dealing with that with my nephew and, um, you know, they, she got advice and people like, don't do that. Don't put your kid on, you know, a drug. It's going to make, like you said, make them a zombie, make them not who they are. Um, and then in her case, it actually worked out well. I mean, it gave him more focus. He, you know, he did better in school, you know, and, and, Hey, that was the right solution for him, right? At the time. Definitely. Right? And and at that age too, it, it's just so helpful. Um, whether it's ADHD, whether it's anxiety, the same stigma sort of is with anxiety medications or depression medications. I don't yeah. want to be a zombie. I want to be who I am. But it's not changing who you are. It's changing chemicals in your brain. Mm. And when your chemicals are in neurotransmitters balance. are imbalanced, mm-hmm. it really affects you. And by putting them back in balance, of course, pills are not the magic bullet. And this is what we learned in the pandemic. Well, we're waiting for this. We're waiting for that. But behavior change is what really makes your life better, what makes your life healthier, going back to sugar, right? If you have diabetes, the treatment is not just taking medicines. It's behavior change. It's taking in less sugar. It's doing more exercise. So same thing with ADHD. The pill isn't everything. The pill is going to help them learn how to learn. Mm -hmm. And that is so key. Sure. You know, and then you think about like the complete opposite end of the spectrum. Like most of the music that we made in the 70s was all based on drugs. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> illegal drugs, right? Well, I don't think we would have had a Bohemian Rhapsody if uh, it wasn't for some kind of like, you know, like. Well, there's a psychedelic, psychedelic revolution coming, not for kids, but for uh-huh. adults. So many psychedelics are being used for refractory mental health problems. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Ketamine clinics and... um and maybe even LSD in the future. Uh, yeah. Psilobicin, which is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms. So there's a lot, there's a lot of good things out there uh, that are being studied carefully and slowly and methodically um, that maybe going from illicit to, to prescribe. Well, we had a guest on the show that got like really bad headaches, something called cluster headaches. Yes. Right? I'm not I sure. Re- if you're I remember that from it. med school, of course. Oh, yeah. yeah. So cluster headaches. And it was like a thing where he's like his whole world was shutting down. And so that's his thing is LSD. And like he goes to these um, like Las Vegas conventions and learns about it. But yeah, it's fascinating. Fascinating stuff. Uh-huh. And all that comes from nature, by the way. <laughs> it, it does, right? Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. 
Okay. So now we talked about, you know, college, med school, you know, being a pediatrician for over 10 years now, but I understand you're doing a lot with schools lately. Tell me a little bit more about that. So during the pandemic, um, there was a lot of hysteria, a lot of fear. Okay. And, and what I realized was, um, I, I immediately at the beginning of the pandemic, I was asked by, uh, a patient's mother who happens to be the head of school where my kids go uh -huh. for, for, um, preschool to be on the medical task force. And so with another, with the help of another physician, shout out to my friend, Kat Chen, mm -hmm. um, we put together protocols to keep the school safe and keep it open during the pandemic. Mm. And we, we were very successful. We used the CDC and American Academy of Pediatrics guidelines, and we had a successful school year during mm. uh, 2020 to 2021, which was not, could not be said for a lot of schools, no. especially here. And I know in California, it was virtual pretty much all year. For, yeah. And in Texas, a lot of my patients were virtual pretty much all year, but I was blessed that my kids with a very robust and layered approach to mitigation strategies, I can tell you that when they're put into place, they work. Mm. And, um, and so I had a lot of, a lot of fun, uh, you know, doing that. It was a lot of tedious work, um, time away from my, my wife, mm. shout out to my wife. <laughs> um, but, uh, and so I got pretty passionate about that. Yeah. How many children do you have? I have three kids. And how old are they? Uh, almost six and then four and two. And so just the one six-year-old, boy or girl? I have a Fiona as my oldest. Okay. She's almost six. She's, uh -huh. She said, have fun in LA with your cast pod. Uh -huh. and, uh, <laughs> and then Benson is four and Lucas two. Got it. Yeah. So you're six-year-old, right? So with this pandemic, because I've got a five-year-old daughter mm -hmm. as well. Um, like most of their life has been like COVID, yes. right? At least what they're aware of, right? Wearing masks, yeah. right? And my kids wear masks really well. <laughs> and yeah. it makes me very proud. I was uh -huh. able to take them on trips during the pandemic. Uh -huh. um, and they're very excited to almost be done with masks. I believe today the CDC is going to loosen mask guidelines. Here in LA. I think the CDC is going to announce nationwide today. Is that right? Very much appropriate for me to be here today. Huh, interesting. Um, okay. But, uh, but yeah, they, this is, that's all they know. I told my daughter Fiona this past week that she has a virus. Um, I also had it. My tonsils were red and it was not strep. Yeah. And she did too. And, and my son says, oh, Fiona has the virus. And I said, no, she doesn't have the virus. She has a virus. Uh -huh. <laughs> it's not all coronavirus people. That's right. Um, and we're coming out of this. Thank goodness. We're, it's been coronavirus for two years, but it, yes. we're starting to, to get back into childhood illnesses. Yeah. Which is which is good. Yes. Yeah. So I wonder if, I guess, I'm unsure if the schools are applicable to that. If the CDC says it's okay, it's still up to the school's discretion or? Correct. I mean, yeah. in, in the end, it's the school districts. Um, but, you know, if the federal government is saying, you know, it's okay, then it sort of gives, gives us a little bit more leeway on these, you know, advisory teams or really at the local level to say, okay, it's, it's, it's okay to scale back because, you know, the CDC says so. There were a lot of people pushing for people to scale back well before the CDC, as we know, mm -hmm. and a lot of parents, you know, getting involved because of feelings they have about masks as opposed to the true issue at hand, which is a communicable disease that for a long time didn't have a vaccine. Yeah. And for a long time after the adults were vaccinated, the kids still were unable to be vaccinated. And school, as you and I knew it from being children, wasn't a safe environment. If, if for adults, the workplace was supposed to be a place where COVID was not supposed to spread. Yeah. School should not be a place where COVID should spread. Mm -hmm. At least that's the idea that 
mo- uh, I thought we all had. Yeah. Um, but some people felt otherwise the last and, couple of years. And what's your personal feeling on the vaccine? I've never seen a vaccine with such efficient effectiveness yeah. in the history of vaccines. It's mm. amazing. I'm blessed. When at nighttime with my kids, we, we talk every night, we finish the day with three things. Your favorite part of the day. Mm-hmm. Gratitude. Your hardest part of the day and what you're grateful for. And mm-hmm. my default, when I can't think of something germane to the day of yeah. what I'm grateful for, I say my education. Huh. Because in a world where knowledge is power, which has always been said, nowadays, there's a free flow of information <laughs> that's, you have to sort of choose what's right. Sure. Um, but having read the phase one, phase two, phase three studies put out by Pfizer. Uh, Which most people don't. Right. And peer reviewed. <laughs> right. And being able to say like, hey, guys, this is safe. This mm-hmm. is effective. And I understand maybe you don't understand the technology, but it's not a new technology. It's been around for years. Mm-hmm. And I'm also blessed to have a friend who's a nano, nano, uh, nanotechnology scientist. So when it <laughs> came to nanoparticles, I already knew a lot because I got to chat with my buddy Asaf. <laughs> so, you know, it's what I'll tell you is it's a vaccine. Vaccines have been effective for 200 years. It's mm-hmm. a technology that's been around for 200 years. The technology started with pus being injected into a child. Mm-hmm. Um, a scientist named Edward Jenner. I okay. call him my favorite Jenner. <laughs> his uh, his son, he injected his son with with pus, and basically that was the first vaccine, if huh. you will. Okay. And then it turns out that's that's the basis for the smallpox vaccine. And nowadays it's not pus being injected into people; it's mRNA inside of a lipid nanoparticle and giving near a hundred percent protection from severe COVID nineteen, which is pretty crazy. Yeah. In a good year, just to put it in perspective, the flu vaccine gives you about thirty to sixty percent of protection against severe flu. And this vaccine is giving 90 to 100% protection against severe COVID-19. It's like hard to argue against it. Yeah. So what do you, so, you know, there's so many, and, you know, I would argue, right, and that there's people that also are educated that have a completely different belief than you do, right? And I'm just curious, like, people will claim that they've gotten... Tourette syndrome because they got vaccinated as a kid, right? That's their true belief. And maybe that was the case, right? But does that mean that everybody should not get vaccinated as a result of that, right? Well, the big one is autism. Autism. And, mm-hmm. and you know, anti-vaccine sentiment didn't start in 1998, which is when um, and now no longer physician published a paper saying that measles, mumps, rubella vaccine is linked to autism. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the damage was done. Uh, and there's so many studies that have shown the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine does not is not linked to autism. And there is no link from vaccines to autism. If people believe that, you know, they believe that. Mm-hmm. And anti-vaccine sentiment started in the 1800s. Um, but, but, you know, this is, it's interesting that 200 years later, people are still fighting against a technology that's only gotten better and better. Yeah. Um, but but autism, just real quick with autism, you know, we do have a lot of people who are still concerned for that when all these different concessions have been made. You know, it was first, it was MMR, the MMR, the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine causes autism because of the, the, the preservatives in it. So then the preservatives were taken out. Mm-hmm. And then it was, oh, see, you took out the preservatives because, because it was causing something. Yeah. And now it's not causing it. Well, it, it never was. By the way, that preservative was aluminum-based mm. and there's more aluminum in breast milk than there is in one injection. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, much more aluminum in human breast milk than in a dose of the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine. So um, unfortunately, people um, people base their 
beliefs on their experience. That's right. Um, and you know, it's hard to, to, to take that objective approach, especially <clears throat> when if something is statistical and, and the side effects are 1%, but you're the 1% that got it. That's so, the thing. Yeah. So that's the fear. People are always fearful of being that, uh, you know, that outlier. And, and it's where you consume your media and where you're doing your research is where you start to put your beliefs behind, right? And especially nowadays, you can, uh, you, you find yourself finding more of what you already believe. And, mm -hmm. and we know, I mean, literally in Space Jam 2, the bad guy was an algorithm. <laughs> and then, mm. Like that should tell you something. <laughs> um, so, yeah. And, and also I, I talked to a, a fellow physician who said, who could not convince a patient to get a COVID-19 vaccine. And the excuse was, um, I watch Fox News. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah. And so mm -hmm. if we don't want to say that part specifically, it's yeah. I consume, my news source tells me not to, huh. basically. And, you know, how do you, how do you convince somebody? The answer is you don't. You, you just tell them, this is what I recommend. And when you're ready to talk about it, I'm here. So now what's your thoughts about other countries kind of almost like going to make it like the law <laughs> where you have to like, it's not even a choice anymore. Well, right? it's interesting. Again, we're, we're, we're halfway blessed here in the nation because there, we may be getting herd immunity for certain people, like for certain populations, there's herd immunity through vaccination. Yeah. And then for others, it's through getting the illness repeatedly and when it's all said and done, which one helped? The answer is both. Which one is more dangerous and reckless? It's getting inoculated by a virus instead sure. of a vaccine. There was a, the first, uh, there's a, a great website, historyofvaccines.org. Okay. Great timeline of vaccines. And if you look back, one of the first uh, physicians who wrote a letter to a government stating really we should be pushing vaccinations and it is reckless to allow people to just get sick with smallpox was in the early 1800s. Mm -hmm. So physicians have, have a pro-vaccine bias. There's no way of getting around it. That's something a lot of anti-vax communities say, oh, you're biased, you're, you're, you have an agenda. The truth is the agenda is just to, you know, do what I do every day, which is vaccinate kids. Mm -hmm. uh, infant mortality, children, more, child mortality uh, since 1800s. Just to put it in perspective. Sure. In eighteen in the eighteen hundreds, out of a thousand children, forty-six percent of them did not make it to their fifth birthday. Mm. In twenty twenty, seven out of thousand did not make it to their fifth birthday. Wow. So medicine has come a long way, right? Yeah. There. And and so when it comes to losing the objectivity in your own child, for example, with a hundred and three fever, you may be fearful that your child is about to have a seizure. Mm -hmm. And honestly, twenty-five years ago, thirty years ago. That child may have had bacterial meningitis at age two, at age three. But nowadays, as a physician, I don't have to worry about bacterial meningitis in a fully vaccinated three-year-old. Mm. So if there's 103 fever, 104 fever for me, I'm just saying, what does a kid look like? Sometimes we as adults with a 99, uh, we're, we're knocked out for yeah. the day. With kids with a 103 fever, they're just sitting there doing what they do. They feel warm. They're yeah. kind of cranky. Um, but of course, sometimes kids do look pretty sick. Again, not downplaying anything. But the truth is, as a physician, I'm blessed. I can't imagine what it was like being a pediatrician 30 years ago when my dad was in his heyday. Yeah. Sending kids to the hospitals for lumbar punctures just to make sure they didn't have bacterial meningitis. Yeah. Going back to needing antibiotics nowadays. We don't need antibiotics as much because of vaccinations. Interesting. Huh. Oh, yeah. Vaccines are, are the fact that we don't have to talk about diphtheria. You know, there were times where diphtheria would wipe out kids wow. in, a, in the town. 
uh, a time where, and actually when I moved to California in 2010, there was an outbreak of whooping cough. Mm. And the whooping cough to you and me is a hacking cough for a hundred days, which is a long time. Yeah. Because your voice, you can cough so hard you break ribs. But for babies, they literally stop breathing. Yeah, of course. And so I can tell you in my first six months of residency, so many kids were getting tested for whooping cough. I got bored of it. I was like, oh, another whooping cough test? Yeah. This is probably going to be negative. This is probably... And that's where we are with the pandemic. We have a lot of physicians, a lot of people in general with just fatigue of the same thing. And a lot of it can be fixed with vaccinations. Mm. And nowadays, going back to 2010, there's a new recommendation. All new parents, all moms, all dads, all close contacts of in infants should get a, a tetanus. I'm sorry. It's a tetanus diphtheria pertussis shot, but it's for the pertussis. So a Tdap vaccination. So how do we make sure certain things don't happen? It's prevention. It is prevention. Uh, and same thing with the pandemic. It's it's not we're waiting for a pill or we're waiting for an infusion. It's keep your hands clean. Don't touch your face. Yeah. Behavior change. Sure. It's, it's always behavior change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting, right? Because like most people don't have the, the health literacy, I guess, right? Is the right term, right? <laughs> health literacy is a big deal. If yeah. you don't know what health literacy is, please Google it. Yeah. Um, but- when it comes to health literacy, this is actually one of the um, initiatives of the CDC. If you look at the CDC website, they have a lot of public health initiatives uh, before COVID existed. The CDC existed. And health literacy is really important. It's not surprising that there's been a lot of issues in this pandemic because a lot of people do not know how to navigate the medical system. Mm -hmm. Even nowadays, you, you get a prescription for something, you take it to a pharmacy. It turns out if you just go to a website, goodrx.com. And there's others. Yeah, you, know, you can pay a lot less just by knowing that that website exists. Yeah, and 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 that's interesting enough. I can tell you an anecdote. When I was in medical school, in my in an emergency rotation in emergency room rotation in Austin, I'll spare you the, the gruesome stories that mm -hmm. I had there. But a lady, again, having commented on my age and my appearance, yeah, mm -hmm. before she was getting discharged, she said to me, "Let me take down your full name. I want to." want to submit your name to Grey's Anatomy. And I said, you know, I don't think that's how that show works. <laughs> <laughs> I'm having dinner tonight with uh, somebody that played a doctor uh, on uh, on daytime television. <laughs> oh, wonderful. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Well, if, if, if that person ever needs help pronouncing certain things, you can give them my number. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so my, my point about the health literacy, right? So, like, you know, like, my health literacy is based upon my life, right? So I lost both of my grandparents from COVID, right? Oh, you know, so they're both that. not vaccinated. The vaccine wasn't even out at the time, right? You know, then my uh, my two boys ended up getting, and they were fully vaccinated. I got it, right? Uh, during the, I guess, the first version of COVID. Um, and my whole thing was I just lost my sense of smell. That was it. Mm -hmm. Didn't have a fever, didn't have cough, nothing, just... I knew I had something wrong with me because I make coffee every morning and I smell my beans and they just <laughs> didn't smell nothing, right? That's how bad extreme it was. And so when we went and got tested, a whole family obviously got tested and sure enough, I, I knew I was going to be positive, right? That's sure. pretty obvious. Um, but then later on after everybody was vaccinated um, and my two boys ended up getting it, again, the second variant, I've got a choice to make with my daughter, five years old, right? And I'm like, what do we do? Right. A lot of people are holding out, don't know what to do. And knowing what the extreme of seeing my grandparents, like, you know, being sure. buried as a result of it with my two boys kind of now in the house, we just went and got her vaccinated. Right. And I think it was a, 
the best choice we probably could have made. Would you agree to that? Certainly. Yeah. I think she's only five, but when it comes to the question of vaccines and people ask why vaccinate kids, if a lot of kids aren't dying, well, first mm -hmm. of all, okay. Thousands of children are not dying, but it's almost a thousand at this point. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. But it's not all about death. You know, it's, it's about whether or not when you get the virus, because we're all going to get the virus. We may even stop checking for the virus at some point. Mm -hmm. Do you want, to have protection against it. Mm -hmm. And and nowadays, the virus is a human virus. It's less weird than it was two years ago when it was a bat virus. Yeah. And whether it came from a lab or came from a wet market, that's not for today. Mm -hmm. uh, but what we know is it was it belonged to a different species and was doing a lot of weird things. So the fear was, was justifiable, certainly, at the beginning. Mm -hmm. um, but nowadays, it is less virulent. It is causing less weird issues, if you will. But a lot of that is also showing to be the case that it's less in vaccinated people, Got it. including children. Um, so if you're hearing this, please vaccinate your children. And at what age though? Like three years old? Well, or? Right now it's approved for five and up. Okay. Um, and hopefully it'll be approved for six months and up. I can tell you that I vaccinated my two-year-old and my four-year-old. You did? Yeah, I wanted my family completely vaccinated. Mm -hmm. When it comes to, to this pandemic, and, and an interesting thing about the pandemic is, you know, it affects so many people, but illness happens an individual at a time. So you really have to protect yourself. And in, as a parent, you have to protect yourself and your children. And when it came down to it, I knew it was safe. I'd already vaccinated hundreds of adults before it was approved for children. And then when we were vaccinating children and also for myself, I, it was fine. I had arm pain for a day. Hmm. Um, now there are some adults who were feeling very knocked out. But remember, when you feel knocked out by a virus, Sorry, let me start over. Mm. When you feel knocked out from a vaccine, it's your own immune system, mm. you know, making that immune response. So, you know, when you feel cruddy the next day, you at least know it's something's happening. Yeah. For those who have no side effects, you know, not even arm pain, you're like, oh, I hope it's, I hope it's working. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No. Um, but yes, I would, I would recommend it. Um, okay. And if you decide not to, again, discuss with a trusted individual. One of the big frustrations for me during this pandemic is how many Patients would come in and say, no, I don't want the vaccine because, you know, of all the things I've read on the Internet. And I tell them, well, I'm here in front of you now. Going back to what I said, I've read the phase one, phase two, phase three. Mm -hmm. I've vaccinated thousands of children. What questions do you have for me? And sometimes they don't have any questions. They just say, no, no, thanks. And I say, OK, well, know hmm. that I recommend it and I'm here and we have it. And when you're ready, come on. Got it. That's yeah. That's good advice. So I hear you got an interesting ancestry story. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> so I tell me more. I for me, going back to our our own experiences, I tend to learn a lot from recent history. And I'm I feel blessed to be an American today. My grandparents um, emigrated from Europe, okay. different parts of Europe, uh, escaping persecution, were Jewish. Mm -hmm. uh, my grandma on my mom's side has a harrowing tale of of survival with her mom and her dad traveling from Austria, getting kicked out, um, and traveling eastward towards the United States, um, going from Austria to Turkey, through Syria, through Iraq, and then living in India for a few years, and then finally making it across to the United States just to arrive when their visas expired. So they ended up, she ended up with her parents in Mexico. Wow. Um, at the same time, or a couple years before, really, um, my grandfather, her my Papa David, he was born in Poland yeah. and he was, turns out, saved by a dentist who gave him a nose job, who said, I don't like your Jewish nose. Huh. And, and basically 
changed the way his face looked. And I, I actually have pictures of that. I'll show it to you guys. Interesting. Um, and he eventually, he spoke so many languages. His parents were in education. His family was in education. There was a school in Lodge, Poland called the Konstadt School, okay. named after him or his family. And he eventually spoke 11 languages and was uh, in, in Belgium. He was asked to interpret for a random gentleman who turned out to be a Nazi. And then he took him to France and says, you're going to be the head interpreter for this Nazi regime in France. And so he lived undercover basically. Oh my God. Um, as a, an interpreter. And I have pictures of him with Nazis. Um, eventually one day a Nazi came up and said, read his whole list of his family members and he was found out. And it turns out that person said, people like you and me are not liked by our Fuhrer. Oh. And he knew it was time to go. Yeah. And so he fled, ended up not getting into the United States and, um, and making it to Mexico as well. So my parents, um, my, my dad's parents also uh, fled persecution. Uh, they had a great love story. My, my grandfather moved to Mexico and always sent love letters and eventually got enough money to bring his, his then girlfriend to Mexico. Huh. She couldn't get off of the ship because of a visa issue. So he got someone to go on the ship with him, get married on the ship and come back come down Interesting. my parents are from mexico okay and I but you have polish descent too then polish austrian lithuanian is that right yeah. huh so fascinating so you still have families in in, in mexico too or? a lot of family in mexico okay yeah, which is great getting to to grow up going to mexico speaking spanish and, sure and spanish is my first language it is huh it's helpful I couldn't even tell <laughs> most people cannot and, and flying under the radar um you know with with Mexican descent is is cool. Well, that probably comes in handy as a doctor in Texas, right? Yeah, yeah and in California. Sure. And in it was, California. It was a dream not having to use interpreters. So just being able to speak to more people, again, such a blessing. Sure. Gratitude for my education and gratitude for my my upbringing. Do your children speak Spanish? They do. They they're, do? They're working on it. My Good. my children, my, my daughter, Fiona, was a lot of no Espanol for a while. But now she's in a du <laughs> dual language program in Houston where nice. she's learning Spanish. And she's showing interest. And my my two-year-old is speaking a lot in Spanish. And so my four-year-old is kind of like, oh, I better start speaking Spanish. So everyone's <laughs> everyone's getting into Spanish, which is just lovely. It's always that thing, right? You know, like um, I've got a good buddy of mine, you know, his parents are Spanish, Puerto Rican, right? You know, he just didn't, they didn't speak Spanish to him. So here he is. That's his whole culture, right? And he just doesn't speak Spanish, right? That's like one regret that he has is that he doesn't speak his native language, right? So that's great. I went through a phase where I did not want to speak in Spanish. Mm -hmm. And then I went to visit my cousins in Mexico and they, they started calling me the gringo. And I said, <laughs> uh oh, I better start learning Spanish. Cause, and I came back home. I said, mom, dad, I, I honestly don't remember how to speak Spanish. We need to, we need to work on it. And thank goodness we did that in high school. Because um, now I speak more Spanish than English most of the time at, at, at the office. That's awesome. Well, we like to do a thing at the end that we call Hennessy Heart to Heart. Um, very simple. Uh, we just ask questions. Whatever first comes to your mind, you just fire back with. All right. So we'll start off. Uh, who is your hero? Oof. Honestly, my Papa David and my dad. Um, both overcoming adversity. And Papa David, who, um, as you heard briefly, just had to live sort of a double life in order to survive and make his way to the United or to this side of the world. And in the meantime, helping a lot of people mm. uh, cross borders, including his family, getting them visas through his connections in, in the government in France. And then my father, overcoming adversity of, of growing up 
his his mother died at age five, mm. and and then he moved to the United States and and had a decision: should we go back? And then didn't. And so all the decisions that my that they all made uh, to get me to where I am today, and to to realize that the problems that I have there are a little bit different, mm-hmm. but still still legit. Yeah. Uh, but but the my my close ancestor really means a lot to me. Sure. Yeah. What drives you? I think what drives me is just setting a good example for children um, and for others. You know, the term influencer is thrown around a lot. Mm-hmm. And, and nowadays an influencer can mean so many things. But And for some people, it's on social media and holding up a product in mm-hmm. the background. But for me, it's just influencing people by doing the right thing uh, at all times. As much as I try, I'm not perfect. Even when nobody's looking. Even right? when no one's looking. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but it's just doing what's right because we're, it's, it's just such a great, great thing. Like life is a great thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and sometimes you learn that the hard way by, by going through some hardships. And this past couple of years have been probably pretty difficult for me, uh, on a, on a mental health note. So please take care of your mental health. People. Sure. It's so important. If you could go back in time, what year would you travel to? Hmm. I would go to 2007. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just I I uh, I always joke that 2007 was the greatest year for music, but I'm sure everyone has uh has their own thoughts that the kid their their music from their, you know, teenage years and and uh 20 young 20s is the greatest for music, but Yeah. Uh, <laughs> a lot of death cap for cutie back then. Um no, I I think I would go to probably to the to the 60s yeah. just to experience the hippie movement. That'd be cool. I think that would be fun. Yeah, I think me 50s. 50s? Yeah, I think the 50s for me. It'd be cool to kind of go see Elvis and like grab a milkshake and see, you know, just kind of see live that life, the doo-wop life, I guess, for a little bit. What's your go-to karaoke song? <laughs> um, I A lot of times in my early 20s, it was Rapper's Delight. But then I realized people probably don't want to see me singing for 12 minutes, but it was, it was a lot of rappers for life. <laughs> I think it was bust a move for me back in the day. I don't do too much karaoke, but yeah, bust a move. What makes you laugh the most? My kids. Oh yeah. That's yeah. for sure. The, the, the things that come out of their mouth sometimes is just so funny. And, and it's just great. The, and not necessarily my kids too. I'm just, I'm blessed to be able to have conversations with so many other people's kids. Uh-huh. So just asking kids questions, especially when I, when they come in sick, I, I, you know, the parents are eager to tell me the story, but I want to hear it from the kids. Yeah. I want to hear it from the five and six year olds. And then they tell me that they, they took this and they felt better and they, you know, and then I put on a bandaid and my, my pain went away. It's just, it's the best. Yeah. And so just hearing, hearing what they have to say. It's sometimes I want to hear what they have to say more than the parents. Of course. Of course. Yeah. Um, so my my daughter and I like Sunday our thing is we watch America's Funniest Home Videos, right? And she just cracks up. Like she sits there and watches a show and you know, person slips falls, you know, there's dogs running around, you know, and it's just that's our thing, you know, but it's so fun to just kind of sit and watch her kind of take that in and just laugh, right? Mostly at other people's expense. <laughs> what makes you angry? Ignorance. Mm-hmm. I can ignorance. Yeah. I can say that plain and simple. Yeah. I think that people are too closed minded sometimes. Oftentimes they hear something new and the the initial reaction is, no, that can't be right. 
Mm-hmm. I wish people would open their mind and say, okay, let's see how this could be right. Or, and a lot of times it happens to be an opinion. Um, and nowadays, unfortunately, ignoramai also have loud microphones uh, and, mm-hmm. and followers and influence and um, ignorance. Yeah. Good, good answer. How would your friends describe you? Um, I think they would say I'm jovial. I think I, I tend to try to make people laugh, hopefully. Yeah. Hopefully not at my expense or other people's <laughs> expenses. Um, and just uh, I think they would they would refer to me as a um as a just a good person. Okay. I think. Yeah. Yeah. That's what you live for, right? You got yeah. one character, right? Yeah. One shot. What's your favorite thing to spend money on and why? Oh, my art is one of my favorite. Is that right? Yeah. Art collector. Big, yeah. When I when I when I lived here in LA, I watched the show Exit Through the Gift Shop. Mm-hmm. Not the show, the documentary Exit Through the Gift Shop. Got yeah. really into street art, mm-hmm. um, graffiti artists. I got to meet Mr. Brainwash here in LA. That was pretty cool. Cool. Um, and and since then, I have a little bit of an art collection. It's certainly not um, nothing that's going to probably be museum in a museum, but uh-huh. I definitely try to own some pieces of some artists who are in museums. Uh, that are in my, that I can't afford. And then when I go to museums, I say, see, I, I have that. <laughs> <laughs> I think mine would be sneakers. Yeah, that's definitely my thing. Yeah. And it's my kids thing too. So both of my boys are into sneakers. I'm into sneakers. I don't know. It's just one of those things growing yeah. up. It's, it's sneakers. Jordan's on a Saturday. That's the thing. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Trying to find some of those really hard to get. You know, sneakers. Yeah. And then when you walk around, like people, people appreciate know. it, right? Of course. They appreciate it. Do you usually follow your head or your heart when you make decisions? Well, since I've started meditating, I believe I've been following my head um, in that I talk things through, I reason things through. Um, but in the end, it's it's the heart that leads the right way. And then you really have to convince, make sure your head is also in the same place. Mm-hmm. So I think people in general, I think one of the things that has helped me over the last year is mindfulness and meditation and trying to respond and not react. Mm-hmm. So I guess you can say it's the mind-body connection mm. that I've been working on for myself. And so... I guess now I would change my answer where it's, it's both because I have the connection, I think in a good place. Do you use an app for meditation? Um, I, someone, I was, I got an an app, um, gifted to me for a year. The, the, the the subscription has since lapsed, but I, I meet up with a group on Tuesday nights at 8 PM. Um, and we meet up via zoom. Okay. I've been doing it for the better part of a year at this point. Uh, on and off, but lately it's been, I realize that when I don't do it, uh, you know, you notice a difference. I notice a difference. The people around me notice a difference. It's, interesting. It's, it's really, it really is interesting. Meditation, powerful. What's your favorite type of foreign food? I think sushi. Okay. I was introduced to sushi when I was in my 20s and I, I just thought sushi was cucumbers and avocado because I wasn't <laughs> into fish at the uh-huh. time. Um, and slowly it's become, you know, something that I'd really like to eat. Of course, Mexican food is a favorite as well. But growing up, I ate a lot of chicken and rice and beans. So I like to, <laughs> to venture out. Got it. What would you say is your best phase of your life? The best phase of your life up until this point? I think my entire 20s uh, was 
I think I was blessed. I was told by my cousin who's nearing 50, you know, know who you are. And I didn't understand what that meant. And um, during my 20s, getting to to party, learning in college, but also outside of the classroom. And then in med school, learning, getting to talk to so many people and learn so much about everyone, everyone's different experiences and, and just traveling at that time. Mm-hmm. And so by the time I was ready to move on and become a, a, a physician, a married person, I was ready. Yeah. And so I, and going back to the pandemic, I, we've all been affected, mm-hmm. but I often tell my patients who are in their teens and early twenties, I really feel as though they have had the biggest disservice. Sure. If, I, if I was to tell you, you're going to have two years of your college, you know, be virtual or oh, not have parties and not have this. Yeah. It's tough. And so when all the stories were, you know, out, you know, um, out, outbreaks in this college and that college, it's like, yeah, it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Kids are going to be kids and they're young and yeah, they're learning. No, it's sad. You know, we've, we've dealt with it like, yeah. you know, just high school, but still college is probably different. Mm-hmm. What do you think is your favorite family tradition? I think just getting together mm-hmm. in, in large numbers. We're blessed to to have a, a big family from all over the United States. And then cousins who marry, you know, we, we, we all, all become family cousins of cousins. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite LA stories uh, when I lived here was I went to a function of a cousin of a cousin in the, seat next to me was for cousin Perry and cousin Perry showed up and it was Perry Farrell. Huh. And, and I thought, Oh wow, that's interesting. And, um, he and I got to talking. I got to tell him that I, I didn't get to have a birthday party in Austin the year before because he had rented out the place where I wanted to have a, a party. Is that right? And he said, Oh, next time call me, I'll be there. I said, okay, you know, yeah, sure. <laughs> and then he said to me, Oh, you're, uh, you're in your residency. So you're a DJ. I said, no, no, I'm a physician. And I thought, wow, we just, we live such different lives, but it was so great to be able to, That's to hilarious. Cousin Perry that day. <laughs> so cool. Um, what relaxes you? Meditating. Just meditating back yeah. to that. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of people think that looking at their phone is relaxing and being on social media is relaxing. Uh, but I think being able to live in the moment is what can relax you. Mm. So whether it's, just detaching from your phone and and just enjoying what's in front of you. Yeah. And that's really what's been really relaxing me lately. I just think music relaxes me. That's one of my things. Oh, yeah. for sure. Uh-huh. 2007, I was super relaxed uh-huh. with all that good music. <laughs> all the great music. The NSYNC and Backstreet Boys <laughs> days, right? Love it. <laughs> what is one thing that you'll never do again? Canyoning. Canyoning? Yes, canyoning. Explain. Um, it is basically hiking in canyons. Okay. Uh, so this was in Switzerland. And unfortunately, GoPros didn't exist at this time. But uh-huh. I really wish it, they had. But you basically walk in through these canyons and you come up to a cliff and the person says, okay, he throws a rock and says, you see where that rock landed? Land there. Mm-hmm. And so you jump and you land in there. And so I did it with a bunch of my friends two months before we graduated from med school. And uh, I realize now, you know, years later, I would never do that again. <laughs> no canyoning. Who knows you the best? My wife. For sure. Oh, right? yeah. She she knows me at this point. <laughs> yes. And, and what a great thing, you know, for, for her to, to know when I'm about to react and not respond, you know, uh-huh. and, and say things like, hey, you know, go take a beat or yeah. I got this for now. Uh-huh. So very grateful for 
for, for Stephanie. And last question, um, out of all your accomplishments in your life and all your success, what do you think is the one thing that your parents are most proud of you for? Well, my mom loves saying my son, the doctor. So maybe that, Okay. Uh, but I, it's gotta be my kids. Yeah. I think they, my kids, and, and that's what I'm most proud of is being a father. Uh, like, mo like a lot of people that that is their pride. But I realize that when it's all said and done, um, I'm going to get the ability. If I influence people, great. If I become an influencer, which again, don't want to be, but as long as I can influence my children to be better than me uh -huh. and, um, and have a better opportunity than me. And I've had a great opportunity. So I hope that I can provide them a great opportunity for success. Yeah. Um, and my parents just love being with my kids. Well, it sounds like that. Well, Alex, I really appreciate you coming down here, being on the show. It's a pleasure to be here, just to be considered an interesting person. That's who you tend to interview, <laughs> interesting people. So I appreciate it. And so if there's any listeners that maybe want to follow you and, you know, and, and, and continue to keep up with you, how do they, how do they keep in touch? Uh, I am, I'm on Instagram at Alex Udovich MD. To be completely honest, I don't post much anymore. Okay. Um, Jenna has my email. <laughs> Jenna has your, well, here's the thing. Like maybe at some point, but we'll eventually be if with, I do, uh -huh. um, I will certainly let you know. Well, maybe we'll be blessed. You've got a lot of wisdom you shared Thank on this you. and this, and you know, at some point maybe I'll publish a book or something. Yeah, so perhaps. We'll that's that's that. definitely, I got lots of book ideas for kids and for parents and for grandparents alike. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Alex. Appreciate that. And uh, safe travels back home. Thank you. This has been the Jason Hennessy Podcast. This show is produced by Whitney Welsh and Jenna Kershaw, engineered and edited by Josh Fisher, and recorded at Hennessy Studios. Please be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>